Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, August 21st, and we're talking about valuation techniques, total addressable market, where to get investing ideas, and more. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by Fool.com's frenzied founder of Faulty Frameworks, Brian Faroldi. Uh, I, I love the alliterative leading right into that last name, Brian. That really cues you up well. <laughs> I was thinking about doing free-firing founder, but you did a great job, as was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm convinced at this point that you really just do this to trip me up more than anything else. That is 100% of my logic. <laughs> Dylan, it's you good. are you are such a good host that it hasn't tripped you up yet. So I need to I try harder. That. Apparently, well, I love it because I figure if I can get through the introduction, that means I I, I can't mess up anything worse than the introduction with anything <laughs> else that I write in the show outline. Nothing's going to be that complicated, right? That's um, right. You are you are our our framework person, our frenzied founder of framework person. But uh, for this show, I'm going to call you at Brian Feroldi uh, because. We are getting questions from uh, Twitter followers, and particularly folks that follow you on Twitter. And for people who do not already, I would highly, highly recommend following Brian. Uh, is a wealth of really awesome investing, personal finance information on Twitter. But you put out there that we were looking for some topics for a show. We have some topics, thanks to some of our awesome listeners and your Twitter followers. So we're going to be running through some different ways that you can value a business and look at the valuation of a company. We're going to be talking about margin of safety a little bit. Um, and then we are also going to be talking about where to get stock ideas. But we're going to kick things off, Brian, with a question from Raul, uh, hope I'm saying that correctly, who asked us about some simple valuation techniques and risk management, creating a margin of safety with investments. Let's talk a little bit about the shorthand valuation techniques first. Yeah. So broadly speaking, valuation is incredibly important. It's a it's definitely a huge part of investing. And there's a whole subset of investors that are called value investors. And they start first and foremost with what is the valuation of the business? That's their very first uh, metric. And it's important, important to know the most common value when people hear valuation, the most common metric that they think of uh, is the price to earnings ratio. And the price to earnings ratio, or to calculate it, it's the price of one share of stock divided by the earnings per share of that same stock. And the ratio between those two numbers gives you a rough sense whether a company is expensive or if it's cheap uh, or not. There are a lot of flaws with any valuation metric, including the price to earnings ratio, but that's as good as any to start with, Dylan. Yeah, and you can calculate that one of two ways. You can look at basically the overall market cap and the net income, or you can do things on a per share basis and look at it that way. Uh, the earnings per share and the price of one share, two different ways to the same place uh, because you're dividing by the same thing kind of either way. Um, I think that that is uh, probably what people see the most often, but of course, you know, you do need that E for the PE ratio to really make any sense. Otherwise, you're going to wind up with an infinity sign, uh, and that isn't particularly helpful if you're dividing by zero. So we also have the price to sales ratio as a nice little shorthand, um, and you tend to see this uh, with unprofitable companies. You also tend to see it a lot in our space, Brian, with software as a service players. 
Yeah, the things that the companies that we talk about the most are obviously the ones that are high growth, they're disruptive, they're the most fun to follow, they're really shaking up the industry, and so many of them purposely choose to reinvest aggressively back into themselves in lieu of optimizing themselves for profits. So that trips up a lot of people uh, because if you're, as you pointed out, if you're looking for a price to earnings ratio. A lot of times it doesn't exist uh, on these businesses because there are no earnings uh, yet. That doesn't mean that you can't follow them, uh, excuse me, that you can't value them. Uh, it just makes it uh, a little bit harder and you have to be more willing to make uh, some assumptions, which a lot of people aren't willing to do. And that makes sense. I think one of the things that's important for folks that are just getting started and that are really starting to look at these types of numbers for the first time is I remember being there as an early investor and saying, okay, well, the market PE is, you know, we'll say somewhere in the mid 20s because that's about where it's been over the last couple of years. This stock's trading at 45 times earnings. It's so expensive. And, um, you know, you're like, well, why would I, why would I pay so much more than market premiums for, for, these, for these shares? Often, when you're looking at these alone, you also need to be factoring in the company growth and what that looks like. Um, there's the peg ratio, which helps you do that. Um, but valuation is kind of an inexact science. I think if you are seeing businesses that have quote unquote high price to earnings ratios relative to the market, or maybe even relative to their peers, or if you're forced to use the price to sales because there aren't earnings, it's very helpful to say, okay, well, they're not profitable. What are they doing on the top line to grow? Does that make sense? Am I am I willing to pay 40 times sales for a business that's growing 40% year over year? Probably. Uh, am I willing to pay 40 times sales for a, for a business that is growing 5% year over year? Probably not. As you just pointed out, there are so many factors that you need to include in the discussion when you're talking about the price to earnings ratio. Uh, one of the ones that I think gets overlooked by a lot of new investors is just asking, is this company optimized for profits? So many companies are not optimized for profits. So if they do have some, they are artificially being held low. Look at Amazon over any time over the last 15 years. Jeff Bezos purposely reinvested every dollar that he could back into the business. More data centers, more warehouses, more sellers, more services. And if you looked at the company's price-to-earnings ratio at any point in basically the last 15 years, your takeaway would have been ridiculous. This business is so overvalued. How could I possibly invest? And the answer there is you're looking at the wrong metric. You shouldn't judge a company like Amazon based on the price-to-earnings ratio until they're optimized for the P.E. ratio. Dylan, let me give you another example right now. Autodesk company that I like very much. Uh, we've done a deep dive on them on this show before. When I look at Yahoo Finance right now, I see that Autodesk has a trailing price-to-earnings ratio of 177. If that's all the information you had, your takeaway would be rid ridiculous. Like This company is ridiculously uh, expensive. How can I possibly buy this? It's important to know that when you look at most uh, websites, such as Yahoo Finance or, or even use screeners, most uh, price to earnings ratio that you see are backwards looking. They're trailing price to earnings ratio. I also think that it's helpful to look at what's called the forward price to earnings ratio, which takes the price of the stock and it divides it by what the earnings are expected to be over the next 12 months or over the next year. If you do that with Autodesk, you see that Autodesk's trailing P.E. ratio is 177, but its forward P.E. ratio is 65. That, that is a much more palatable number. 
The other thing that's important to keep in mind with um, uh, the, uh, the PE ratio is that more often than not, it's using gap numbers. And Dylan, we've seen all the time when you're talking about tech stocks in particular, there can be huge differences between gap uh, and non-gap. So that's just another thing to keep in mind when you're relying solely on the PE ratio for valuation. Yeah, and gap, non-gap is a can of worms, right? There are some people who really don't like the way that a lot of these non-profitable businesses wind up using non-gap numbers to, to highlight their business and seemingly be much stronger than they are. The reality, and I think what we are coming back to time and time again, and we will as we continue to talk about valuation here, is it's important to understand the business and use somewhat tailored looks at that business to understand. And so, one example of this too, for valuation purposes, is price to book, right? This is something where it is so useful if you are looking at banks to use the price to book approach. Um, as someone who doesn't spend a lot of time looking at banks, it's not really something that I put in my toolbox all that often. And, and I'm way less familiar with it than a lot of the other core valuation techniques. Um, but if I was evaluating a bank, that would be one of the go-to metrics I would look at. Not so important for some of the other things that are more in our tech wheelhouse. Absolutely correct, Dylan. Uh, insurers are another uh, industry where price to book is a is a good metric to use, and you can use price to book on companies like Berkshire Hathaway, uh, J.P. Morgan, uh, Citigroup, um, etc. Those those that those metrics are are meaningful in those industries. If you try to use price to book on Shopify, it, it just does not work. You're going to get some ridiculous number, and you would never invest. So it's important. Uh, I, I think it's useful to have a range of valuation metrics at your disposable, understand them. And when you're trying to gauge the valuation of any given company, look at it at a bunch of different uh, numbers. Another one is the uh, price to free cash flow uh, ratio. So uh, free cash flow is um, uh, cash flow from operations minus uh, capital expenditures. Some businesses, such as software as a service businesses, actually are generating free cash flow well before they generate earnings. So you can look at the uh, you can at least look at the price to free cash flow that will show up before the price to earnings ratio uh, shows up. So always always try and use a range of metrics just in case one is artificially inflated for some reason. I, I like what you're saying about using a couple different tools and a couple different metrics to triangulate something that makes sense. Because um, I think when people think about valuation, I can I can think back to my junior sophomore year in college and taking some finance classes that did the DCF and, and had you modeling things out. And you have this idea that you're working to some exact number and you're providing all these inputs. And at the end, it kicks out what a company is truly worth, uh, the intrinsic value based on what you, are, what you are deciding is relevant as inputs. And unfortunately, um, that makes this whole topic really inaccessible. And I think it also has people kind of wrongly focusing on precision and focusing less on maybe the directional accuracy of what they're looking at. Yeah. And for those that don't know, DCF stands for discounted cash flow calculators. The the idea is that a the value of a given business today is the sum of all of the future cash flows discounted at some rate. Uh, for example, if you think that a company is going to earn $100 per share next year and your discount rate is 10%, you would be only willing to pay $90 today for that $100 in expected cash flow. To your point, Dylan, I think that's exactly right. Discount cash flows uh, calculators are so precise that you can easily lull yourself into getting exactly the wrong answer. Um, so I personally don't use discounted uh, cash flow metrics, but they can make sense in some cases uh, for some businesses. 
I think that the exercise is almost more important than the output. I was listening to some of our analysts kick around the idea of DCFs the other day, and I think it was Maria Gallagher said, you know, the process of going through and finding that number you are going to start challenging a lot of the inputs and you're going to start thinking about what realistic growth looks like what what realistic element of their their market their total addressable market are they able to seize and asking those questions is far more instructive than getting a two decimal share price number um, because those those things are much more important to the long-term success of the business and uh, the individual price target is, is just really isn't all that helpful. I think I think Maria is exactly right. I would say that going through the process and seeing seeing what assumptions need to be made for that investment to quote unquote work out on a DCF basis is important. It's the same reason I use frameworks. I don't think that the exact number that my framework check spits out is valuable, but I think going through the process and thinking through everything uh, is valuable. Uh, one other thing I will throw out here, Dylan. Some businesses are easier, easy, easier to value than others. And there's some subset of businesses that are just impossible to value, just flat out impossible. Uh, Tesla, impossible to value in my opinion. Zoom Video, uh, Mercado Libre, uh, CrowdStrike. These companies are growing so quickly and are so dominant in their industries that it's nearly impossible to put a, a valuation metric on them today. So some companies... Their growth potential is so huge and, they're, and they have so much optionality in them that you can't use valuation. You just have to buy and take a leap of faith if you're interested in them. Yeah. I think the more optionality a business has, the harder it is going to be to value because you can't necessarily see the range of outcomes in front of that business over the next five to 10 years. And chances are the market can't either. And that's where you get into those situations where a quote unquote expensive stock uh, is actually cheap. On a, on a historical basis when you look you know, five years in the future and that company has been able to double or triple because they have all these markets that the, the broader stock market, Wall Street, didn't quite expect, didn't quite value in the way that they probably should have. And think back to Amazon. In Amazon in 2010, what was the discounted cash flow value of Amazon Web Services in 2010? Like you probably could not have come up with a number. It was infinitely decimal small. What's Amazon Web Services worth today, 10 years later? Hundreds of billions of dollars. So that's a big way. We look for companies that have optionality, have the ability to launch new products and new services, because if a company can do that successfully, it can create multitudes of value that you can't see when you first make your purchase. One other thing that I think you can do as kind of a fun little valuation exercise, and, and this ties a little bit more into what we were talking about with DCFs, with the idea of the inputs being more important and just understanding the core things that drive a business forward. Um, looking at the core elements of what drives value for that business and then using it as a way to put the market cap into context. And an easy example of this would be the social media companies. So for them, the users are the most important thing because ultimately the users are the product. They are selling access to those users, to advertisers who want to be able to promote their products. Um, and to kind of walk through this quickly with a company, so Pinterest has a market cap of $20 billion, uh, over 400 million monthly active users. You could say they are being valued at about $50 a user. 
And that would be one way to look at their business. You could stack that against what they are able to generate in value and revenue for each user and start to see whether that valuation makes sense Um, or put it into the context of a company like Twitter, one of their peers with a market cap of around 31 billion and somewhere in the neighborhood of 350 million users. They've changed their reporting requirements and don't give us monthly actives as often. So we'll say that's $90, roughly a user. Pinterest users aren't being valued the same way that Twitter users are. Possibly another bull case for Brian Feroldi and Pinterest, but an important way to look at this company, understand what drives value, and start to make sense of it. I think that's a great metric that you just just laid out there. And the point is that valuation is very much an art. It's 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 far more art than it was science. When I and I, when I first started investing and really came to the fool. Valuation was one of the primary things that I looked at. That was one of the primary lenses that I looked through things. The longer I've invested and and the more I've studied David Gardner's uh, winners keep on winning style, the less value I personally place on, on valuation. One of my favorite investors at The Fool, Brian Stoffel, doesn't even look at it all. He doesn't. He he just says, if this business checks all my boxes, I'm buying. If it doesn't, I'm not. And and that that that's a framework that works. Yeah, and, and I think. It probably has shifted for me where it was one of the first things I looked at to now it is probably one of the last things I look at. And it very rarely will keep me out of something entirely, but what it might do is inform the position that I start with. Um, So a very richly valued business might be something where I'm like, you know, I can probably start a little bit smaller than some of my other positions for more established companies. Yeah, I think that's exactly how you should look at it. If you like everything about a business except the valuation, there's no harm in taking a, a tiny bite of it. I guess related to that, we can kind of touch on the second part of Rahul's question, and that's creating a margin of safety with investments. And this kind of gets into that same idea of you know valuation, having what you think a business is truly worth and what the market is willing to uh, pay for shares of it at the moment giving yourself some comfort. Um, and it's a little bit of a wonky topic, but I think we can do it justice, Brian. Yeah, this is a top, uh, this is a concept that was popularized by uh, Warren Buffett and is like uh, the mantra of, of value investors everywhere. The idea is you come up with your own independent valuation of what any given company is worth. And then you only buy that company when it trades at a substantial discount to what you think the fair value is. Uh, the number that I've always heard thrown around is, you know, if you think something's worth a dollar, today, you don't want to pay more than 80 cents for that dollar. And that 20 cents of gap between what it's worth and what you're paying, that's your margin of safety. That, that, that renders the needs for things to go right, or that makes it so if something goes wrong, you don't get hurt that much. And it's a concept that just makes a lot of sense uh, on the surface. And Buffett has, has deployed that strategy with great success uh, throughout his career, buying companies like Coca-Cola uh, and American Express when they traded at huge disca- uh, discounts uh, to what he thought was fair value. I think the problem is that you need to be able to come up with a number of for that intrinsic value that makes sense, and uh, that's beyond the scope of a lot of you know newer investors for sure. But um, we were just talking about it before. I mean, those those DCFs are only as good as what you put into them, uh, and you know it, it kind of gives you more the illusion of precision than uh, maybe the most accurate picture of what a business really looks like. Yeah, and I think that if you you can do it on some on some some companies, like the bigger, the more mature, the more predictable, um, 
the the higher the likelihood that you can value a company successfully and then buy at a at a discount to that. So a company like say a utility or a trash uh, hauler or a beverage maker like Coke or, or or Pepsi, those companies have far more predictable revenue streams and pro- and profits um, and businesses in general than do a lot of the tech stocks that we talk about. So I think that you can still apply that framework to those kinds of businesses. But when stocks are at all times high, boy, is it hard to find ideas. I do think that there are elements of margin of safety, that way of thinking, that are probably um, applicable to other investing ideas. And they don't need to be nearly as hardcore as you know the longtime investor with a spreadsheet getting down to that price target that we were talking about. I think the concept of having a cushion and having um, some sense of security with what you're buying and that you're not, you know, putting everything on red, so to speak, um, is is something that's applicable and transferable in a more simple way for a lot of investors, Brian. Yeah. And and Dylan, you talked about this before too, on in that same vein. One of the ways that investors can create a margin for safety of themselves is by positioning uh al- allocating position size in their portfolio appropriately. If you find a very fast growing company that really interests you, don't put 20% of your portfolio uh, into it. I mean, yes, uh, sure, you you could make a ton of money if that works out, but the risks for those kind of businesses is incredibly high. There's nothing wrong with putting small bits of your portfolio into a company and then following its progress over time. That's exactly the strategy that I use when I when I find a company that just checks every box for me. I'm very willing to put half a percent of my portfolio into a given company, even if it trades at some obscene valuation, as long as I believe that everything else, as long as I like everything else about the business. And doing that insulates my portfolio from me paying some ridiculous price and being wrong. Similarly, I think the ultimate margin of safety is having your financial house in order before you start buying stocks. You know, being able to go in and say the money that I'm putting into this investment is money that I don't need for the next three to five years. We harp on it so much, but it's so important, Brian. Um, that puts you in a position where, especially if you're buying high growth stocks, you can weather the storms and you can not get too spooked when one quarter's results wind up sending shares down. So if you're working with money that you don't immediately need and you have some cash on the side, I think that that's a margin of safety in its own way. I think that's exactly right, uh, Dylan. I like that I love what you're saying there, and I wholeheartedly agree with that. Uh, another thing I will throw out there is if you find a company that you believe is almost guaranteed to grow within the next five or, or 10 years, that in a way creates its own margin of safety. Yes, you could be overpaying uh, in the short term, but if the company consistently grows, um, it can eventually grow into its, its, its valuation. Uh, another way to think about that I think about margin safety is just with the business itself. Um, does it have customer concentration? That's risky. Right? Does it have a, a balance sheet that has tons of cash, or is it debt heavy? Uh, the debt heavy ones—that's risky. Uh, is demand for the company's product cyclical, or is it recession proof? Is revenue recurring, Dylan? You know we were going to say that. <laughs> All right, listeners, take a shot. <laughs> Brian said it. <laughs> Does the company have the ability to raise prices? Um, all of those factors work together to make the business itself more resilient and make it more likely that the company can continue to grow over time. I think that buying companies that exhibit those traits uh, do build in a margin of safety. 
Yeah, I 100% agree. And and that gets a little bit more to the accounting type definition that you would use for margin of safety. We were talking about it in the investing sense where you have a price target and what it is currently worth and that cushion that that might afford you. An accountant would think of the concept of margin of safety and basically say, what's the gap between current sales and break even? What kind of reduction can we weather and still be a surviving business? And all those elements that you just talked about, Brian, get at that. You know, can can we continue to service our debt? If sales slump pretty quickly, you know that cash position is going to be huge. Um, and <laughs> you know, it's funny, Brian. These are all things on your checklist. These are all things that are part of your framework for how you evaluate businesses. So baking these types of things into how you look at companies and just making it a part of the process can immediately give you that sense of margin of safety. And then, and then you'd even have to think about it as a carve out. It's already baked into the process. Exactly. And it's almost like I was looking at my checklist when we were making the script for the show, Dylan. <laughs> the margin of safety was with you the whole time, Brian. <laughs> um, we also have a question from Matthew asking how you can avoid getting fooled, lowercase f, by Tam. And this might be you know, the question of the last five years in tech, Brian. I think um, for every S1 show, every prospectus show, we've looked at a company that is recently going public. There has been some line in there saying, we believe our total addressable market to be, insert a huge number. And uh, it's kind of hard to gut check that. It is. And some investors uh, at The Fool don't look at the TAM at all. They think it's a completely irrelevant metric. Uh, other people, and I include myself in this group, I love to see the TAM, and I want us to know uh, how realistic it is and who came up with it. If the management team is the one that says, here's our TAM, discount accordingly. If Gartner or some other third party, reputable third party comes up with it, maybe you can put more, uh, more stock into it. But I always think it's useful because... I want to understand, uh, before I make an investment, I, I need to believe that a company can grow at a double-digit rate for a decade plus. That's where the big returns uh, come in the market. And you can only do that if you have a huge growth runway uh, ahead of you. So I do find it's helpful when I, I look at a company's uh, a TAM. If I see that a company has a TAM of $50 billion and their current sales are $500 million, that means that they've captured 1% of their TAM. Even if, they're, even if they're off by a factor of five on their TAM, there's still a tremendous runway for, for them to grow. So I personally always look at it. Do you, Dylan? Are you, what, what camp are you in? I do. I think it's useful, um, but I, I wouldn't over-anchor to it. I, kind of similar to you. Um, I, I think that penetration's huge, but I really like gut checking that number. And I've seen a lot of crazy numbers thrown out there. One of the ones that sticks out to me and, and why I think it's important to understand what goes into those figures is I'm pretty sure it was Uber's prospectus. They were comparing their penetration in overall transportation miles. Like that was how they were addressing their total addressable market. And um, if you believe that ride hailing is going to take over and supplant every single mode of transportation, then I think that that could be a reasonable total addressable market. But if you think people are going to continue to use uh, public transportation and things like metros, things like buses, um, then I think you probably need to discount the total addressable market that they're throwing out there. And so, looking at the figure and then understanding what inputs are going into it, super helpful. 
maybe if you can gut checking it against other third party research. You mentioned some of some of the big names. Gartner's great for this kind of stuff, um, but there are so many other folks out there, especially in the digital marketing space and the ad spend space. Um, there's a lot of data about this stuff, and putting together your own total addressable market can be really helpful. Comparing it against what the company throws out there and just seeing how realistic that is. Yeah, on that same vein, I remember maybe it was like 20 years ago, the Coca-Cola got a new CEO and he came in and he said, well, we only have 1% of the liquid that goes in oh, the, of the beverage market. It was like that included like tap water and all that kind of stuff. And it was like, uh, you might be overestimating your TAM there uh, a, a little bit, but yeah, discount, discount accordingly. And it's also important to know that TAM, the total addressable market, that's not a static number. That is a number that is constantly uh, changing. For example, what was Amazon's TAM in 1995? Books. What's Amazon's TAM today? Uh, more than books. Uh, <laughs> Any, in more anybody, that, anybody that has a margin is basically the <laughs> yeah, TAM. Exactly. Uh, exactly. And that just shows the, the, how optionality can render TAM obsolete. If a company has, has embedded optionality and the ability to launch new products and new services in adjacent markets, that, that can dramatically make a company's total adjustable market opportunity far bigger than it is. So again, some investors that do not look at TAM, what they want to know is, is this a business that has optionality? If they do, they can grow their TAM. Therefore, whatever TAM I see today isn't the actual number. That kind of thinking also makes sense to me. <laughs> to apply that same type of thinking, Brian, to a company that doesn't have all of the resources in the world, uh, like Amazon, and thinking about it maybe in in way that's more repeatable across uh, a lot of stocks that you would look at. We talk about the software as a service space all the time. And one of the reasons we like that space so much is once customers are in there and they see the value of what these companies provide those companies continue to roll out new services and see what's useful to their core clients. They can expand their user base by getting into new verticals. Um, and you know, say you're in accounting software and you also want to be able to provide people with payroll. You also want to start rolling out HR solutions. Uh, it's pretty easy to do that. That probably wouldn't appear in your prospectus uh, if you were only going to start thinking that way three, five, ten years down the road. Yeah, that's exact. That's exactly correct, and that's another reason why we always talk about software as a service companies because we've seen that time and time again where the best ones land a customer and then expand, expand, expand with new products and new services. Each time they do so, they're increasing their TAM. But overall, it's a useful metric to 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 look at. But like everything else, context is key. And that's really the theme of today's show, I think, is with, with all the numbers that we're throwing out there, you can't over-anchor to any single one, but what we're trying to do is get a more complete picture of the business with each one and, and work to better understand it as we learn more and more. Um, Brian, we're running a little long, but I want to wrap with one more question, and this is favorite free investing tools. Um, Love this one. We get access to some some cool stuff being Motley Fool employees, um, and you know we we make heavy use of Y charts and things like Cap IQ. Um, however, uh, not everyone is able to afford those types of tools, and so we want to talk about some things that are a little bit more budget oriented. But I think the the coolest thing for me, kind of cutting my teeth as an investor, was all the stuff that Wall Street has access to. We have access to. 
in terms of the core information, what a lot of these software providers do is make it easier to find that information. But the regulatory filings, the investor rela relations website stuff, all that's there for the public. Exactly. And that's why probably the, the I mean, my, my go-to source, whenever I'm interested in any company, the very first thing I do is a company's website. Because every single company out there has an investor relations section. And you can find, uh, in some cases, transcripts of previous uh, calls. You can find uh, uh, earnings presentations. You can find company overview presentations. You can find links to the SEC filings, analyst, analyst reports, uh, etc. Not all investor relations websites are created equally, but wow, can they be full of all the information that you need to make an investment decision. And if the company makes it hard, you know what? That's what <laughs> SEC Edgar's for, right? You know, the, the regulators uh, are there for a reason, and um, they make that information available to the public uh, in, a, in an easy and relatively systematized way. And I love that we have that resource. You go straight to the source, get the primary information. You don't even need to necessarily read the earnings reports that come out from us or from uh, so many other members of the financial media. Uh, I think it's almost better to get the numbers unfiltered and see what you think is important. And you can do that from those resources. Yep. I think that that's exactly right. Always going to the source themselves and you actually get the real information because some of the other sites that we're going to uh, recommend, sometimes their numbers aren't always exactly 100% accurate. So you have to keep that in mind. But another one that I use all the time is uh, finviz, F-I-N-V-I-Z.com. That is a free stock screening tool. If you want to come up with ideas for sectors or themes, or you want to screen by almost any metric that you can think of, uh, that's a wonderful tool that ha that's completely free to use. So that's one that I use regularly. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the better free screeners out there. I use it for a lot of show ideas. You know, like we, we did a show recently, uh, checking in on some of the best performers year to date. And I got that information right from Finvis. You know, that was the screener that I put in, just looked at year to date returns, filtered down to stuff in the tech space, and uh, then looked at the companies that we want to talk about. And it's, it's nice and simple, relatively straightforward. Um, Yahoo Finance is also a pretty good resource. I know they work at one point kind of the, the go-to for all things financial media. And I think um, as aggregators like Google News and Twitter and then all these other places have kind of come more into vogue, um, they've been displaced a little bit. They have a lot of great information there. There's a there's a, actually a pretty good source for analyst estimates. Um, they usually wind up being able to aggregate that pretty well, which can help you with those forward earnings things that you were talking about before, Brian. You do need to be careful and make sure that you're looking at the right numbers, though. Occasionally, I do see some wrong numbers on there. Yep. Uh, for example, I was just looking at Autodesk, and Autodesk's numbers uh, were wrong. The, the, the price earnings ratio and the forward peak ratio uh, were slightly off. Again, I think that is mostly the gap versus non-GAAP thing. But yeah, keep that in mind. Uh, another one I will throw out there that I recently discovered and I like a lot is stockrow.com, S-T-O-C-K-R-O-W.com. That has a nice 10-year view of companies' financial information right there for you and all kinds of free charts and stuff that you can use. So a really handy one. And it actually shows analyst estimates uh, one, two, and three years uh, out, whereas Yahoo Finance is just one year out. Obviously, keeping in mind, they're estimates, but hey, it's still good to know what the street is expecting. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, and I know you have a couple more tools here, Brian. One thing I will throw out there, we've been talking a lot about publicly traded companies. If you're at all interested in the private space, Crunchbase is really great for that. You get some early profile information on some private companies. Um, very often, you can see what some of their funding rounds look like. Obviously, not investable ideas for, for most people at that point. We have to wait until they hit the public markets. But if you're interested in some businesses um, that may come public soon, that's that's a great place to go for information. Right. And we are learning long, but hey, three 
where I'll throw out. Uh, <laughs> Whale Wisdom, W-H-A-L-E-W-I-S-D-O-M. That's a great site for aggregating what hedge funds, mutual funds are buying and selling. So that makes it easy to track Warren Buffett's portfolio, uh, for example. Uh, another one is IPO Scoop, S-C-O-O-P. That is one that just shows you a lot of information about new IPOs, how they priced, how they've done. That can be a great place to go to find information. And we would be remiss, Dylan, if we did not give a plug to fool.com, which is one of my, has been one of my go-to resources uh, for decades now. Um, tons of great information, tons of great content. And just within the last year or so, fool.com started offering free transcripts on conference calls. They are excellent. Uh, so definitely check that out uh, if you've never used that before. Yeah, we have some really cool site features that I make use of pretty regularly. The the management conference calls are one of them. I love our earnings calls um, and and the the updates that we do around earnings. Um, they're really good quick snapshots and and often you know you can't read every single earnings report, so it's a great way to get a quick primer on something that uh, you know. In the case of like Apple, it's like all right, I can read what Evan New has to say about the Apple earnings report and then focus on some of the other things in my portfolio. Um, and I'll throw those ten percenters that we do out there too. You know, we we see some pretty big swings sometimes in the market. And sometimes you just need to know quickly what's going on. And we have a whole series, uh, 10% Promise, that's related to covering big moves with short kind of quick summaries that give you a sense of what's going on. So yeah, we got we got to mention fool.com to keep the bosses happy, Brian. <laughs> exactly. And, and I mean, I would be saying that anyway, because I, I legitimately use fool.com all the time. Me too. Um, well, Brian, I, I like I said, I urge people to follow you on Twitter at Brian Froley. We wind up doing a lot of our calls to, hey, we want show ideas, you know, via Twitter. And so you're at Brian Froley. I am at Wiley Lewis. And you can catch the show at MF Industry Focus. We love getting show ideas there. You can also reach out to us via email, industryfocus at fool.com. I think that's going to do it for this show, Brian. We're, uh, we're pretty long at this point. <laughs> but it was a fun one. Always great talking to you, Dylan. Have a great weekend. Yeah, you too. And folks, if you are looking for more of our stuff, you can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass, and thanks for listening. Cool on. Cool on.